Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I will not fear, but I am afraid. The shadow cast upon me in this valley is daunting. The anxiety is haunting. This lingering feeling of doom is weighing upon me. They say that when you've hit rock bottom, the only way is up. But honestly, the weight on my shoulders feels like too much. The fear of my situation is too real. The shadow cast over me is too dark. In this hour of darkness, I must stand up and take another step, realizing that the shadow has no power over me. It cannot stop me from reaching your light. I am a child of God, and I will not fear. According to um, surveys, Right now in the United States, there are approximately 40 million adults 18 years of age and older who have been diagnosed with some type of anxiety disorder. That rate uh, amongst adolescents ages 13 through 18 is 31.9%. And for kids, um, our children ages three through about age 12, it's about 12%. Now, you have to keep in mind when you hear those statistics, those are only possible when people actually go and seek either mental health help from a professional or they go to see their medical doctor and they're diagnosed and, and that's recorded and we have those stats available. Think about all the men and women and young people and children who, who don't seek out any kind of uh, professional help, any kind of medical help who are struggling every day with anxiety. It's an understatement for me to say to you that we are living in a time, not just worldwide, but particularly in our own country where, where people are really struggling with anxiety and struggling with fear. That's just the reality of the world that we live in today. Well, I was doing some research and reading about this. I came across a um, statement, it's anonymous, I don't know who said it, but. I thought it was, uh, it was cute and yet was very accurate. This person was trying to describe their anxiety and they said, you know, anxiety is a lot like a toddler. Uh, it talks all the time. It blames you for everything that's wrong and it wakes you up at 3 a.m. every morning. And all of us know that toddler in our life, don't we? That voice, that feeling, that, that thing in our life that just won't stop, it won't shut off. We hear it day and night. It keeps us from sleeping, it stresses us out, that anxiety, that fear that rattles around in our lives. And so what we're gonna do this weekend and next weekend, just this little mini-series, is we're gonna talk about how to create what I call a biblical strategy for dealing with anxiety and fear in our lives. And fear and anxiety are like two sides of the same coin. We'll talk more about that next weekend. But before we get into that, I just wanna say two things uh, so that we're really clearly understand each other, whether you're watching online or at one of our campuses or here uh, in Prairie. The first thing is this, and I want to acknowledge the fact, and I include myself in this group, that there are some of us who, because of um, a chemical imbalance, perhaps in our, in, our, in our brain, or a biophysical issue, or perhaps because of severe stress and trauma in our lives that was chronic, 
I talked to you about that in my book, Reset. Um, that, that, you know, it, we can't overcome this on our own. We need, we need a therapist or we need medication or whatever. And, and I want you to know that I acknowledge that and I affirm that. And I'm all for, particularly in my case, I believe in Christian uh, behavioral therapy, um, cognitive uh, therapy. And I don't want anybody walking out here thinking that you should feel ashamed of yourself if you need help, if you're on medication, etc. I am thankful for the therapists, the doctors in my life who wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for their help. So I don't want you to hear what sometimes you hear from some pastors and, and some Christians that, you know, it's just the Bible, it's just prayer, and anything else you shouldn't need, that's a sign of weakness. Nope, it's not a sign of weakness. If, if somebody breaks their arm uh, and goes to the doctor for help, do we complain about that? Do we say, oh, you're weak? Of course not. Well, there's no difference when it comes to mental illness. Number two, there are a lot of people today, a lot of us who struggle with anxiety, and it's not because of some severe trauma in our life. There's no biophysical issue. There's no you know, chemical imbalance going on in our bodies. But you know, how do you live in this world with all the things that are going on politically, economically, socially, and on and on it goes, and not feel anxious, and not feel stressed out, and not feel worried, and not feel afraid? And I want to say to you that what we're going to talk about this weekend and next weekend, I think can really bring down your insecurities, your anxiety, and your worry. Just like it can, it can do the same thing for those of us who maybe are in therapy and, and having to get more uh, professional help with what we're struggling with. I think what we're going to cover these next two weekends be, can be a big help. So here's what I want you to do. Uh, if you per, turn in your Bibles that are in the pew pockets, if you want to use those, to page 795, I've asked my wife, Marcia, to come up, and she's going to read for us Psalm 27. That's where we're going to start, Psalm 27. So would you all stand as we read God's word out of just honor to the Lord? You can follow along as Marcia reads aloud. You can read to yourself, and let's get this passage together. So here we are in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then, I will be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. 
Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Ernest Becker was a cultural anthropologist famous for winning the Pulitzer Prize in 1973 in a book he wrote called The Denial of Death. And what Ernest Becker says to us is that there's something in all of us that longs for immortality, and we come up with all kinds of ways to ignore death and kind of, you know, believe that we're going to live forever. In the midst of all that, he makes this statement that kind of captured my, my attention, and I wanted to share it with you. Here's what he says. He says, to live fully is to live with an awareness of the rumble of terror that underlies everything. Gotta think about that for a moment, don't you? In other words, what he's saying is to be fully alive, like to be fully alive is to be aware that there's this kind of rumble of terror underneath of, of everything. Don't deny it, don't ignore it. How many of you have ever experienced an earthquake? Let me see your hands. Wow, quite a few of you have. The biggest earthquake, uh, the last big earthquake that, that we experienced was when we lived in Northern California, the Loma Prieta, and I think it was about 1989. I was uh, out on Alameda Bay, and I was standing on a soccer field, and things began to shake. And uh, what was fascinating is that I was standing still, but because everything underneath of me was shaking, I started to shake. And as I started to shake physically and realized what was happening, I started to shake emotionally, <laughs> wondering, oh, no, is this the big one? It's amazing how, how something underneath of you, you know, if it starts to move, then begins to move you, translates itself into your very being. And I think that's just a powerful illustration of what we're experiencing right now in our world, in our society. There's a lot of shaking going on in every area of life. And all of us feel this rumbling and all of us feel this shaking. And what are we supposed to do about it? Well, if you uh, go to the self-help book section, if you can find a bookstore anymore, uh, or if you le listen even to some uh, popular preachers, they will tell you that you know, a lot of what we fear and worry about is never really going to happen in our lives. And so rather than wasting our time thinking about those things, what we really need to do is we need to focus more on, on coming up with kind of positive declarations about ourselves, positive declarations about life, having a positive attitude, and just, just dealing with the present. Forget the past, forget the future, just dealing with what's present and what's happening now. And I believe that to a certain degree. But when I read David and I read the Psalms, I realize that David wasn't reading those books and he probably wasn't attending those churches. Because David, if you think about it, imagines the worst kind of situation. You pick it up in this psalm, and you pick it up in a lot of his psalms that he's writing. He takes a, a very different perspective because, you see, David is a realist. And he understands that there's real trouble in the world, and it can really affect our lives. And, you know, why does this happen? And what, is, you know, what role does God play in it all? And how do we overcome it? And what hope can we hang on to? That's the story of the Bible. It's this great story about how everything was good in the beginning, how it 
fell apart, why it fell apart, how God has made it possible to be reconciled and, and the hope that we can have. But somewhere in the middle, it's easy for us to get caught up in, in all the things that can go wrong in our lives or the lives of those around us that then create this sense of anxiety and the sense of fear. So what David does in the psalmist, it's like he imagines what could go wrong in order to prepare a strategy to deal with it, which I think is a whole lot better way to live. Rather than just having stuff happen to us and falling apart and being upset and being angry and, you know, all the things that go with anxiety and fear, better to say, you know, I know some things are going to happen in my life. It's inevitable. I don't want them to, but when it does, I want to be prepared to to deal with it. So, for instance, if you look at verse 3, if you still have your pew Bibles open, he says, though a mighty army surrounds me. Now, there were times in David's life when he had mighty armies surrounding him. But in this case, he's saying, though, in other words, if, let's suppose is what he's saying, there's a mighty uh, army surrounding me. Or if you come down to verse 10, he says, even if my mother or my father and my mother forsake me. Now, we have no evidence at all that his parents forsook him. But he's just saying, you know, if these things happen, if this happens to me, here's how I'm preparing myself to deal with it. Here's my, here's my strategy for, for facing it. So what is the strategy? Well, it's all summed up in verses 3 and 4. Here's what it says. David says, though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. So, there, you know, there's the strategy, right? There's pre-thinking this thing. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. Here it goes. One thing. This is so simple. The solution is so simple. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. So there are three words that I want to suggest to you are are the means by which we can strategize and prepare for the things that happen in life so we have peace rather than overwhelming anxiety. And here are the three words I came up with out of this text, all right? So the first word is abide, all right? To rest, to remain, to abide. Notice what he said. He said, that I may what? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord. The second word I pulled out, kind of older English, is Behold, I like that word. It's very rich. We'll talk more about it in a bit. Behold, he says, he says, I want to not just dwell, but I want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. And the third word that, that I chose was this word pursue because he says to seek him in his temple. So let's say the, let's say the, um, the three words together just so we get it in our minds. Ready? First of all, abide, behold, Pursue. One more time. Ready? Abide, behold, pursue. So if you practice those things, you can really bring down the anxiety and fear level in your life. But the question is obviously, what does it mean to abide? What does it mean to behold? What does it mean then to pursue? Well, first of all, when David says that I want to abide in the house of the Lord, he doesn't mean like I'm going to take my bed in the tabernacle because the temple hasn't been built yet. I'm going to take my sleeping mat. I'm going to take my wardrobe. I'm going to take my, you know, my food. I'm just going to live in the tabernacle. He's not saying that. He can't. Only the Levites can go in and out of the tabernacle and later the, later the temple. Only a high priest can go in the Holy of Holies before God's sacred presence and only once a year. And he better not have any unconfessed sin. So what does David mean? I want to abide in the house of the Lord. 
Basically, basically what he's saying is, I want to live every day in the presence and in the awareness of the presence of God. Now think about that with me for a moment. We've talked about it before. It's nothing new. But God, who is everywhere at one time and all there in every place at one time, God invites you and me to be in his presence. Many years ago, back in the 80s, when I was just beginning to pastor, um, I attended what was called the Billy Graham School of Evangelism. And uh, this one was being held in Tampa, Florida. That wasn't a bad place to go. And uh, I had a scholarship to be able to go because I was a struggling, you know, a new pastor. didn't have the funds to, so they scholarshiped me to go. And I went. And you had like a week of, of evangelism training, and then you got to attend the crusade there in Tampa. Most excited to hear Billy Graham. I'd only seen him on TV, you know, in the crusades, but I was actually going to be in his presence. Now, I remember I sat probably about three pews back from him, and he was up on the front, and, and he just gave a great talk, but I was like seeing him for the first time physically. Right there he was. I was in Billy Graham's presence, but I never had the opportunity of a face-to-face -face encounter with him, an eye-to-eye -eye contact with him. He wouldn't know me, as they say, from Adam. We had no relationship. I couldn't call him up. <laughs> you know, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't say, hey, can we have coffee or tea or a soda later on and just have a conversation. I was in his presence, but I really didn't know him. So when David says, I want to abide in God's presence, what he's saying is this. He's saying, I don't want to just know about God. I really want to know God personally. I want eye to eye. I want face to face with God. What he's saying is, I don't want to just talk about the love of God, I want to experience God's love in and around my life. And what he's saying is, I don't want to just learn about God's holiness. I want to immerse myself. Think about them being baptized in that tank. I want to immerse myself into the sacred presence of God. Did you know that that's available for everybody here today? It is. To have such an awareness on a regular, not once in a while, but on a regular basis. What does it mean face-to-face -face with God? Well, a little over 44 years ago, I met this beautiful young lady over at what we call Crown College. Back then it was called St. Paul Bible College. Her name was Marcia. And uh, it was, for me, it was love at first sight. It was not for her, and you can understand probably why. And... Um, I liked her a lot. I mean, I liked her a lot right away. And I would tell her, I would say, Marsha, I really, really like you. I would do like reallys in there. And you know, she would never say she liked me back to me, which just kind of left me like wondering if she liked me or not. And, and as we saw each other more often and, and were beginning to date, I felt like I had gone past really, really, really liking her too loving her, and I decided I needed to tell her. So on a beautiful fall uh, Minnesota evening, we walked out by one of the lakes there and on a path, and the, the sky was beautiful. The stars were out, and I wanted to tell her I loved her, but I was so afraid, because I was afraid I would say something like, Marsha, I want you to know I love you, and she would say something like, that's interesting. <laughs> so I, I took her hands, we were standing there, and I remember I looked up into the sky, into the stars, and I said, Marsha, I love you. 
And do you know what she said to me? She said, don't tell the stars, tell my face. <laughs> tell my eyes. And it's been, you know, over 44 years of absolute bliss since then. <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing, because I think it's been blissful, haven't don't you? She said that was interesting. Anyway, uh, <laughs> she didn't say that. She didn't say that. But no, it's, you know, the reason I tell you that story is because, listen to me, I want you to know today that God longs to look in your eyes and tell you that he loves you more than you long to look in his eyes and tell him he that you love him. I want you to think about that. If that's all you get today, meditate on that the rest of this week. That God wants to look in your eyes and tell you that he loves you more than you want to look in his eyes and tell him you love him. And a lot of us have a hard time believing that he wants to do that because we know ourselves. We know how sinful we are, and so does God. But God loved us so much. And see, here's where the gospel enters the picture, that he made it possible for us to be reconciled to him. He made it possible for us to look him in the eyes and for him spiritually to look us in the eyes and experience his love. I like this passage in 2 Corinthians 5, 18. It says, and all of this is a gift from God. Isn't that beautiful? This gift. God gives us a gift. Who brought us back to himself. Here's the gospel through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. You know who the best evangelists are? Think about this with me. The best evangelists are not the people who are really good at, you know, giving you the ABCs of the gospel. The best evangelists are the people who, who just know how loved they are by God. Then it just comes out of them. Because if you know you're really loved by somebody, you talk about it. It gives you security. You speak about it, and the world is so desperate to know that God loves them, and he does. For God so loved the what? The world, right? Ephesians 2.18, Paul says, Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So, so the question is, how do I get there? How do I get into this place of the face-to-face -face of the abiding presence of God? And the answer is, in order to get there, you got to remove an obstacle because there's something in the way. And what's fascinating is that what is in the way, according to Tim Keller and Augustine, <laughs> what is in the way is oftentimes, or are oftentimes, things that are good. And so a lot of times what keeps us from, listen to this, what keeps us from having peace in our life are actually good things that kind of get in the way. In fact, Augustine talks about that. Augustine was one of the church fathers in the 4th and 5th century. He said, you know, there are a lot of good things in our lives. For instance, your health is a good thing, right, when you have good health. Money can be a good thing in our lives. The love of money can ruin our lives, but money itself can be a good thing. Our spouse, our, our children, our parents, our friends, our, our good relationships are good things in our lives. Our career can be a good thing in your life. Your accomplishments can be a good thing in your life. Being loved and be accepted by others, man, that can be a good thing in our lives. But sometimes good things can become bad things or keep us from experiencing the peace of God. It can cause anxiety to set in when the good thing, listen carefully, becomes, as Augustine says, becomes the one thing. If the one thing is anything but God, as good as the one thing might be, it can lead to all kinds of anxiety and fears in our lives. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, 
Our fears are directly proportional to the vulnerability of the things that are our greatest joys. If God is my greatest joy, I will live without fear, hence without anxiety. If my one thing, however, or he says, if, if my one thing, <laughs> let me try this again. If my one thing I most want is God, I am always safe. Let's go to Dale Hummel. It's a little simpler. What I'm trying to say to you is that your sense of anxiety or peace is directly related to how vulnerable or how risky you, say, you feel your one thing is in your life. So, for instance, David says in that passage, he says, even if my father and mother abandon me, we don't know that they ever did, but think about how important our parents are to us, especially when we're younger. If my father and my mother divorce, if my father or mother abuse me, if my father and mother die, if they're my one thing, if they're what matters most to me in life, oh my goodness, what am I going to do if that happens? I'm filled with fear, I'm filled with anxiety, I'm going to feel like a victim, I'm going to be down and discouraged, maybe even hateful and bitter. Or how about money? Money's a good thing. But if money becomes my one thing, I've got to have money, I've got to have financial solvency, I've got to have security, and my money disappears, or my money goes away, what happens to me? A lot of us get really anxious and frustrated and worried about that, scared about that. It's just a good thing, but because it became the one thing, it affects us. How about, for, how about our health, mental, physical health? If that's my one thing, if that's your one thing, what happens when our health declines or, or we have a crisis or we have a health, you know, our, our health is attacked? If it's our one thing, what does it do to us? It shakes our world up, doesn't it? Do you see how good things can, can become an issue? If, for instance, and we see this in our society right now, so let me just bring it up. So many people are searching for, are searching for value, are searching for worth, are searching for um, acceptance. They just want to be loved. And there are so many ways to search for that, right? Whether it's, it's sexual identity or gender or, or money or career. There's so many ways that our world says, well, try this or try this, try this. So we put all these things on our, on our table, right? And we keep thinking maybe this will make me feel loved, this will make me feel accepted. And when I was thinking about that, I thought about her. You know her, right? Marilyn Monroe. Why are we still fascinated with Marilyn Monroe all these years later? Do you know that Marilyn Monroe was in 12 different foster homes before she turned the age of 16? Can you imagine that? 12 different foster homes. The one thing she wanted more in her life than anything else was love and acceptance. And you would think, based on her fame, her fortune, her sex appeal, her beauty, all the powerful people that she knew or had relationships with, you would think that Marilyn Monroe would have found love and acceptance, but she didn't. And at the age of 36, she died of an overdose of barbiturates. See, the world puts out this buffet and says, make this one thing and you'll be satisfied, you'll be happy, and maybe for a little while, but in the end, we're just, we're just left a wreck. Only God, only God can fill that void. Because, because God is imperishable. God cannot be corrupted. God won't change on us. God won't let us down. 
Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 8. He said, I am convinced that nothing, nothing can separate us from God's love. That was Paul's one thing. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or on the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And here's what's so important. Paul says, I am convinced. Are you? That's like a really good question, isn't it? Because sometimes, I'll be honest with you, sometimes the way I react to things that happen in my life would not send you the message that I'm convinced about that. Because we get caught off guard because we don't have a strategy. We're not ready. We make assumptions. I want to be positive. I want to make positive declarations. I want to read my Bible. I want to pray. I want to trust in the Lord. And then stuff happens. And I'm not, I haven't prepared a strategy to deal with it. Are you convinced? I hope you are. So, you say, well, okay, all right, I want to abide in his presence. Well, how do I, how do I have face-to-face? How do I have eye-to-eye with God? And that takes us to our second word, which is what? Behold, all right? He says, I, I want to dwell, that's the abide. He says, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. What does it mean to gaze? Well, the best way for me to respond to that is, what are the things that capture your mind and your heart and your attention? Like, you know, one of our favorite times that Marsha and I enjoy here in Minnesota is the fall season. And, and to be able to go for a walk, uh, maybe along a lake, when the leaves are turning color, and you see the color on the, on the trees, on the leaves, and you see it reflected back on the lake, it, it's captivating, isn't it? It captures your mind, it captures your attention, it captures your emotion. It's not that you captured it, it captured you. What is, what is something that has captured you lately? A sunrise? A sunset? Maybe the face of a, of a baby. Every time I see babies, man, I just, I just gaze. They're so, they're so beautiful. They're so sweet. And what is it that captures you, that, that you just, it stops you in your tracks, and you have to take a look? What David is saying is, he's saying, I want God, I want, I want to abide in, in his presence. I want his presence to, to capture me. Well, how does his presence capture us? Go back to Augustine going to impress you with some Latin right now, okay? Augustine came up with three words that he says have to happen if, if we're going to allow ourselves to be captured by God. Here's what they are. He says, first of all, we need to practice retentio, which means to retain. And the idea here, and y'all, I'm, I'm guessing most of us have iPhones, right? You see something you really like, you what? You snap a picture, and what happens? That picture is downloaded in the cloud or on your phone, right? You can call it up any time. That's what retentio means. It means to snap a picture of God that, that stays in your memory. As he shows you himself, whether it's in nature or in, or in someone or particularly in his word, okay? Contemplatio, all right, means to contemplate, right? To comp- contemplate means to dwell on something, right? To take it in, to think about it. And then finally, dialectio, that means to delight in something, to delight in something. So the question becomes, well, how do you do that? And the way we do that is an illustration I want to share with you. So I'm going to ask my friend Crystal to come out here, and she is bringing a beautiful bowl of ice cream. Crystal, you're amazing, all right? She's going to place it up there, and, I, and I'm going to tell you a story, okay? Now, um, about uh, in, to, in 2004, I think it was, right, when Ben graduated from college in Orange City, Iowa, at Northwestern College there, 
um, he told me about this place called the Blue Bunny Ice Cream Factory in Lamar's, Iowa. And he said, Dad, they've got something there called the Goliath. I dare you to try it. This is the Goliath, all right? Exact replica of the Goliath. And I said, well, I feel like David today. Let's go, let's go see. So we went down to Orange City, Iowa, and I ordered the Goliath. And they brought it out. And there were a lot of people in the little ice cream shop, and they're all kind of like staring at me, right? And they set it in front of me. Now, I want you to know that I experienced retentio, contemplatio, and dialectio when I saw this. All right? You with me? So first of all, retentio. All right? I looked at this thing, and I just created a photograph in my memory. Marcia says I remember everything by food, particularly ice cream. I just created this photograph in my memory. I just thought, that is beautiful. That's a sunset. That's a sunrise for me. That's, that's a beautiful baby's face right there for me, all right? So I just, you know, I ponder it in my memory, right? I, I, I can recall the scoops. I can recall the, the sugar cookies, and these are mini ones. They had big ones in there. I can recall the different colored sprinkles, the chocolate, hot fudge, the caramel sauce. I can recall all those things. I could smell the, you know, ice cream. You can smell ice cream. Do you know that? I could smell the cookies. I could feel I could feel the cold, like even on this, wafting off the ice cream. And it all, it all became a picture that I've stored in my memory banks of that encounter with ice cream. Listen, that's what retentio means. It means to look for and have encounters with God and to store, store those encounters in our mind's, in our mind's eye, in our, in our memory. I wish I had another 40 minutes to talk about this. You don't, but I do. Because I went for a run the other day and God spoke to me and said, get the earbuds out of your ear. I want to I I reveal myself to you. I'll tell you about that story maybe next weekend. It's just, God, I tell you, I tell you, God wants to tell you he loves you. He wants to reveal himself more to you than you want and know is possible. Contemplatio, what does that mean? Well, as I looked at that ice cream on that table, as I looked at that Goliath, I pondered. I pondered to myself its beauty. I pondered to myself the different scoops of ice cream in their chocolate and vanilla and cookie dough and peanut butter chocolate and the sprinkles and the, co- and the cookies and the texture of the cookies. Um, I, I, uh, I took time to imagine what each one and each bite was going to taste like. I mean, David had a slingshot. I had my spoon. It's going to conquer this Goliath. Um, I I reflected on, you know, why is it I love ice cream so much? I ruminated on why is this presentation of ice cream so different than all the others? Contemplatio, with God. Imagining who God is. Imagining, you know, how is God living me? Imagining what it will be like to be with him someday. Imagining what he has said in his word and what that means. Tasting and seeing God, experiencing God, enjoying God. And then finally, dialectio. Delectio is, don't just sit there and look at it, take a taste of it. My taste buds were so excited when I was able to finally get that thing in my mouth and begin to enjoy it. My heart was racing, my eyes were filled with delight, and I forgot about everybody else in the room. It was just me and and Goliath. (laughs) And I took him down. God says, delight in me. David says, I want to delight in you, Lord. I, I don't want to just know about you. I don't want to learn about you. I don't want to just think about you. I want, I want to immerse myself in you. And listen, I'm telling you, God is waiting for you. God is waiting for you. He wants that more than you want that. But we live in a world that robs us of that. 
because we have cell phones and iPads and computers and schedules and calendars and we're just going 100 miles an hour because the devil doesn't want us to retain, contemplate, and delight in God because he knows if we get a real taste of God, all that other stuff's not going to matter. And sometimes, you know, God allows some challenging things to happen in our life, not to hurt us, but to set us aside so we will take time to retain, contemplate, and, and delight in who he is and what he wants to do in our life. And i got to get this thing off because I'm salivating, literally, as I, as I think about it. Crystal, thank you so much. You're amazing. I'll eat that later. All right. Now, by the way, I did, I did eat the whole thing except for the sludge in the bottom, and I had hiccups for the next nine hours. So we had to drive from there to Naperville, Illinois. It was miserable, but I would do it again. Anyway, I want you to imagine for a moment this table represents your life. Would you do that for a minute? The question I want to ask you is, what is you know, what's on your table right now that you're looking to for your sense of love, value, security, hope, is it God or not? If you're anxious right now, if you're dealing with stress right now, listen carefully, possibly what's happened is you've put a good thing on that table and that good thing is not working. That good thing is falling apart. That good thing is breaking. Get it off the table. Put God back on the table. That leads us to our third word. And our third word is pursue. Say it with me. Pursue, pursue. What does it mean to pursue God? It's not like God's running away and I gotta go catch him. What David means in the Hebrew there, he's saying it means to actually seek out God's counsel in order to know his will and do his will. If I had Marsha up here right now and I embraced her, you would see that I love her and she loves me. But if I really love Marsha, I'm going to do more than just embrace her. I'm also going to go and I'm going to do what will serve her, what will please her if I truly love her. Part of being in the presence of God and experiencing God is to not just be with God in the embrace, so to speak, but it's then to go and do what I know will please him, what I know is his will. Because I love him and I know what he he did for me. Pursue. And that just, that's discipline. That just takes time. What's on your table that maybe you need to get off your table? I want to I give you an opportunity for the next 40 days to try something with me. We have on our webpage, and here's this QR code you can, you can scan in our web address. We've put some scriptures up there for you to use to retain, contemplate, and pursue God. I want to challenge you every day for the next 40 days to take whatever time it takes, not five minutes, not 10 minutes, not one hour, but whatever time it takes to center yourself every day and put God where he belongs at the center of the table of your life. And use those verses because they're going to show you so many ways to enjoy God, so many ways to ruminate and reflect on him and to experience him so that all the other stuff in life just doesn't matter anymore. You can go check that out. Let me close really quick with one fun little story. It wasn't fun last night, but Marsha and I have been out uh, 
ministry-related things, and came home uh, yesterday, and everything was going fine. I have a little bug in my throat. I didn't feel real well. I wanted to get to bed, and I was in the shower, and Marcia came in. She goes, we have a problem, which is not a good thing to hear, especially when you're in the shower, all right? So it's like, hurry up, dry up, put my clothes back on. What's going on? Well, we have uh, a bedroom upstairs and a bedroom downstairs that we never, they're, they're for our family or guests when they come. We never use it. So we, we never go in there. And somehow in the bedroom upstairs, the toilet started to leak. It didn't overflow. It was just, it was just drip, leaking, drip, 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 drip. And it went through the floor, down in the basement, through the ceiling, and onto the carpet. And we've, we've had, it's like the third time something like this has happened. I don't know what it is. It's a curse on me or what. But like, at least it wasn't pouring out. But it was enough that it, it ruined the ceiling, and it's all a mess out there. And I have to tell you what, it made me a bit anxious. It frustrated me. It, it upset me. And, and, I, and I'm going to preach this morning. And, I, and I, I'm trying to go, to go to sleep. And, you know, I'm thinking about all the things I need to do. I cleaned it up. We did the best we could with it. And we'll take care of it later on. But, you know, I just, I just all of a sudden, though, as I was thinking about the message, I thought, so what did I do? I just put the dripping mess on the center of the table. And now I'm letting it control how I feel and how I think. And what's going on in my life. Because, you see, I don't like inconvenience. Anybody else there with me? And I don't like broken things. I don't have time for it. Do you? I like convenience. I like things to work and to stay the way they are. See, that's a good thing, isn't it? But I like it so much that when something happens that ruins it, it makes my life inconvenient, or the thing starts to drip, or it gets broken, ugh, that upsets me. That's a small thing compared to what m- most of you face, what the rest of us face. But it's an illustration that God gave me to remind me that, you know, even the small things can get under our skin and agitate us and makes us, make us anxious. And I need to be reminded that God, God's not there to make me anxious. God's, God's never going to be broken. God doesn't drip all over things. God is incorruptible. And if I'll keep him the one thing, then all these other things, eh, you deal with it. Even if it means the end of my life because my body, you know, is a wreck. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. One thing. Who is your one thing? Brian. Brian. 